Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we're talking to Dr. Dana Dorfman. She's a New York City-based psychotherapist with 30 years experience treating adolescents and parents in her private practice in schools and agency settings. She is the author of the new book, When Worry Works, How to Harness Your Parenting Stress and Guide Your Teen to Success. Welcome, Dr. Dana. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Dana, I feel like anxiety is maybe the biggest topic we hear about from moms on our Facebook group. It is this kind of undercurrent of worry. In this book, you're talking about our kids' anxiety and our own anxiety, but you kind of start with the famous metaphor you know, put your oxygen mask on first, that we have to address our own anxiety to be able to help our kids. Is that right as a starting thesis statement? That is absolutely right. And I want to be clear that this is not a pathologizing or maligning of anxiety, that we all have anxiety, we all need anxiety to survive. It's an integral part of being human And so by identifying our anxiety, it is not necessarily connoting wrong or like this is what I am doing wrong or this is how I'm screwing up. It's just that we all have it. My notes say this book is not about really pointing fingers at behaviors. My mother, who was an MSW and a therapist, when I would talk about my own anxiety, she would always say, listen, the anxious bunny survives. That was her like go-to point. Like anxiety serves a huge purpose, right? Like the bunny is always like, who's about to eat me? Who's about to eat me? But that's the bunny who makes it. And so I think it's really important and a point that maybe doesn't get made enough that anxiety is useful. It's not just something to be eliminated. Yes, and it can't be eliminated. And it is, it's to ensure that we survive and it's to detect any kind of threats, not only physical threats, but emotional threats as well. Like we all fear on some level being rejected, being abandoned. And so we all have our sensors out to ensure that we are safe among our groups as well. You know, the parental anxiety, I get annoyed by this. And I think I am resistant to that word because I feel like when I'm told that I'm an anxious parent, that I'm overly anxious about where my kid's going to go to college or should my daughter take the subway by herself, that that anxiety is something I'm bringing to it and it's optional. 
that it doesn't have to exist. There was just an article this week in New York Magazine about parents who aren't letting their kids who are young teenagers travel around the city by themselves. And of course, in all the comments, we're like, look at these anxious parents that are ruining these kids' lives. And I thought, like, does a parent in Chicago or Minnesota or anywhere else like let the kid like ride the bus by themselves and hang out downtown? No, of course they don't. But this article was set up to ridicule the overanxious parents, which I think it certainly doesn't help. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that it is we all like to point fingers at other people when we detect sort of parts of ourselves that we don't like about ourselves or that we feel self-conscious about. So whenever we find ourselves being super judgy, which we can all be of other parents especially, it's because we are probably fearing something within ourselves or not liking something within ourselves. And if you think about anxiety, anxiety's purpose is to anticipate the future and to protect ourselves. If you think about like the premise of parenting, it is to protect our young and to prepare them for the future. So the idea that there would not be anxiety in parenting is a totally misguided notion. Of course, all parents have to have anxiety to some degree. It's an integral part of being protective, and it's an integral part of being prepared. As a matter of fact, my grandmother said, as I was like just about to give birth to my first child and my father, who was probably in his late 60s and is like a really big guy. And my grandmother was this very small little lady and she was like petting him. And so she said, you'll see, you never stop worrying. Once you become a mother, it's a different kind of worry. You'll worry the way you never have before. And she was right. And so this is not to say these are anxious parents. This is saying we are parents. We're naturally anxious. Let's just see how it manifests for what's our own unique version of it, particularly when it comes to achievement. That's what a lot of this book is about. But this is not to say you're an anxious parent. We're all anxious parents. We should be. Uh It's sort of like saying you're a breathing parent. (laughs) (laughs) I pulled this quote from the book, which is exactly what we're talking about. The very nature of parenting is centered on preparing our child for the future, a future that is uncertain and impossible to control. So yes, anxiety, as Amy likes to say, is baked in the cake. But it also can get out of control, which you sort of set up in the book in terms of what are the particular stresses that you see for raising teens today that may be different than stressors of the past? Well, there are kind of innumerable stressors of parenting of this generation. We are the most educated and the most anxious generation of parents If you think about, I hate to blame everything on technology because technology is of great value. That's how you and I, we are all talking. We are inundated with information at a pace that our brains can't keep up with and certainly adolescent brains can't keep up with. And part of what the information that we are inundated with is some pretty scary stuff. Even all of the statistics about anxiety in teens, that that's pretty anxiety producing, gun violence, that there are social and political stressors, there's climate stress, there is certainly political stress. I mean, the list goes on and on. And because we have access to all of this information and all of the potentials that could happen, it's pretty anxiety producing. 
I wanted to ask about being a parent of an anxious teen. And it's I know it's a family system. I know that it's often the case that a kid with profound anxiety will have an anxious parent, a clinically anxious parent, because that's where they got it from. But in the very hypothetical experience of somebody I know, let's just say, right, an anxious teen, just like you were saying, all parents are anxious. I mean, all teens are anxious. All teens have anxiety producing situations that they are living in daily. They tend to offload, it seems to me, their anxiety. It's like touching something to discharge your static electricity, right? They take it out on you. They raise your anxiety and then feel better about themselves, and then you're left holding it. How do you advise parents who are in that situation of being sort of the sponge for the anxiety around them? It's probably more complicated than what I'm about to say, but I do think that your or one's being aware, and I too can personally you know, relate to this as the mom of two teens too. And as a parent of an anxious teen, I think that it is that much more important to not judge or blame yourself as far as the anxiety, even the way that you were positioning it. Like, well, it is, they come to it honestly, because they're likely to have a parent who inadvertently passed that gene on to them. The more that we can be aware of it and own it and understand how it manifests within ourselves, the more that we can use it even to our advantage. There's something very beautiful and incredibly powerful about being able to say to an anxious teenager, like, I get it. I was just talking to a patient right before we got on who was talking about her child's anxiety. And she was saying, I can remember having had that anxiety too. And she told that to her son and her son said, yeah, but mine is worse. Like you don't get it. And I'm sure he, it was unimaginable that his very capable mother could have ever felt as anxious and scared as he was feeling in that moment. And I think that we want to say like, I get my version of that. And I remember being your age and feeling something similar. I don't necessarily know exactly how you feel, but I know my version of that feeling and I know how uncomfortable it is. There's something about just sharing it as opposed to and validating it and empathizing with it, which also helps you contain it without absorbing. Yes. Contain it. (laughs) Mm, Contain without absorb. I just saw Amy's eyes light up. Oh, that's a good one. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Yeah. It's a skill and I can't say that I always do it, but the more that I am aware of it, even in the moments, uh, like I know what my body feels like when I start to get anxious. And so as I'm talking to my kids and I see you know, I feel it in my chest and I get this feeling in my stomach and I know like, okay, Dan, I just like take a step back. That doesn't necessarily mean like you need to do anything magnificent, but just even being aware, like my anxiety is being ignited in this moment. And so I wanted to, which is doing it for self-protective purposes. It's not doing it because I'm, you know, right. a terrible mom or anything or an over-anxious right. mom that right. New York right. Magazine <laughs> is going to write about. But that I'm just being like self-protective and trying to survive in this moment. And I love my kid and I want to protect them from feeling pain. And so like just kind of knowing, like kind of giving yourself a little bit of a, a soothing gesture, intellectual gesture or actual physical gesture can then sort of help us be that much more soothing and helpful and containing to our teen without 
absorbing it again. Absorbing, that seems to be the key for us. We're talking to Dr. Dana Dorfman, and she is the author of When Worry Works, How to Harness Your Parenting Stress and Guide Your Teens to Success. And we'll be right back. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses, first two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we say, and making diaper changes a breeze. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. So we agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. (laughs) But all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use the code motherhood at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code motherhood for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. So I want to break down a little bit some you move into the book into how anxiety works. And I think I'm familiar with some of these phrases, again, having grown up with a mom who's a therapist, talking a lot about anxiety. But the way that anxiety functions through a lot of these terms, I thought we'd go through a couple of them because they're kind of revelatory if you haven't heard them before. So let's start by talking about black and white thinking and how that manifests and what role that plays in anxiety. So a lot of times when we are anxious, it informs the way that we think. It's sort of like you're putting on a pair of glasses and that you're seeing things through a very specific kind of lens. And we call them cognitive distortions, sort of all of these different ways that just sounds much fancier than like we think in different ways when we are anxious and we focus on different things when we are anxious. And so in an effort to kind of distill down something that is very complex, it's tempting for us to think in very black and white terms, that we make everything very binary. So when you're anxious, you may think, 
well, I'll either succeed or I'll fail, or I'm either smart or I'm stupid, or that we try in an effort to make something more simple and more, I was going to say palatable, but it actually makes it less palatable. Or sometimes I think it's like your brain is tricking you into seeing the world in these categories both for myself and my kids, this will either be the best vacation ever or will fail at it. And it's like, it will probably be a vacation where there are good days and bad days. Some people will love it. Some people might not like it that way. It will be a lot of different things, but it will not be the greatest vacation we've ever had or proof that I'm a bad mom. You know, like those are the categories that it goes into. Absolutely. And if one of your kids is crying because they, you know, wanted to stay in the pool I guess it's a younger kid, and you're saying, no, you have to come out for dinner, and they've cried and then ruined the meal for the rest of the family. Well, he just ruined the whole vacation. Like, this is a bad vacation. That we have such an intolerance for the nuances and complexities of our daily lives, even the fact that a vacation, I never get how people say, I guess I'm never what somebody who says like, that was a great vacation, because I feel like, yeah, there were parts of it that were totally annoying. I had to wait online. And, you know, I couldn't find my passport. And there were other parts that were so cool and exciting. But like throughout the day, even don't we have like, parts of the day that totally are lame, and then parts of the day that are bland and then parts of it, like in order to simplify something or just to even make it more, I mean, and granted, nobody wants to hear like, well, you know, there, there were parts of it that I enjoyed and there were parts of it that I didn't enjoy. It's just like, (laughs) how was your vacation? Like all days. Yes. Yes. It had good and bad. This leads us to catastrophizing, which I've always found to be sort of I've always found that to be sort of contradictory because why would somebody who is anxious and worried something bad is going to happen constantly lead towards the certainty that now something bad will definitely happen? Why does anxiety catastrophize? It's another protective mechanism. If you can go to the most extreme example, we fool ourselves into thinking that then we'll be prepared for it, that at least we won't be caught off guard you know, we don't like uncertainty. We don't like to be ill-prepared for something. And so if we can go to the most extreme, most catastrophic possibility, then we feel as if we've at least begun to prepare ourselves, that we could start to get our ducks in a row. As a matter of fact, I don't think my daughter will mind my saying this. She's in college. She has been sick for a week or so. She finally agreed to go to the health center And she has had a bad cold, but she said that she, her ears have been hurting and now her neck hurts and that her, I think because everything is so inflamed. And so she said, I'm pretty sure I have MS. And of course, the person at the urgent care that she had gone to told her that she shouldn't be a psychology major and that she thinks too much because she said to the person, (laughs) like, whatever, of course, they weren't compassionate the way that she had hoped. But And that is terribly scary. She said it somewhat facetiously, but I think, you know, we can relate to that feeling. We have a headache. We think that we have a brain tumor. Oh, my God, we we better get our will in order, as morbid as that sounds. And also, I think the dominoes are going to fall that my kid didn't do his homework. I got an email. This is the sign that everything goes wrong in his life, right? Like, this is step one of everything turning terrible. Yes. And I think that... It's one thing, the maybe hypochondria and stuff, but I tend to do it in terms of like, this one thing is step one on the slippery slope that certainly ends in 
me not having a job, whatever it is, and that it's the dominoes fall in your mind. My husband always says to me, you really like to worry about every aspect that could happen, don't you? I'm like, yeah, I get it out of the way that way. Nothing's going to surprise me. Nothing's going to sneak up on me. I've got it all worried out in advance. Yes. Can I ask a follow-up question to that? So we are supposed to do the worrying for our teens to some extent, right? Teens have a greater appetite for risk than we do as their parents. We want to keep them safe. How do you suggest to parents that they kind of Like, I don't let right now my 15-year-old daughter ride the subway by herself. I might be comfortable with that in six months or a year, but not right now. If she had to, she could. I'd rather she didn't. How do you sort of assess something like that as an example in your head about this is catastrophizing, this is overthinking it, or this seems like a reasonable thing for this child at this stage? How do you sort of clock that for yourself? I think it is very hard, and a lot of it is contingent upon that kid. And it may even be that if that's something that you're working toward, that even it might not be as binary as like they can or they can't. It may be that if she's, especially if she is even asking or would like to be able to acquire this skill, it may be that you might even collaboratively problem solve with her. Like, I don't feel quite comfortable with that because I don't trust whatever, I don't trust the world enough right now. And so, but I understand that this is a step that you would like to take. Like, I wonder if there are some intermediate steps that we could even do together that would sort of help us be able to, that you be able to do what it is that you want to be able to do and would indicate your independence. In fact, we had even done it with my daughter who is now in college, but the first time, you know, my husband rode it with her that because she ended up taking the subway to school, like across boroughs. And then it was and even sort of as they were riding together, they sort of reviewed the different, you know, the lines that she was taking, what would she do if this particular line was not working, what would she do, you know, and he could even sort of walk her through like, he has a lot of specifics about how he rides the subway. So he even said, like, I always ride the middle car, for some reason, he never runs for the subway. He's always very punctual. Like I'm the type who's like sweating and dragging things and like squeezing in at the last minute, which he thinks is utterly unsafe, which is why he did the subway with her. But so he even said like, don't run for the subway. It's not worth it, whatever. So like just even walking her through, they did that a couple of times. Then he even like rode in a different car from her. I'm sure it was still in the middle, but like, and then whatever, and sort of slowly working toward it. And it, she actually very functionally took the subway and in fact goes to school now, was insistent on going to school in a city and sort of prides herself on being able to navigate in any city. You know, it's a great skill to have. Yeah. That's a case where the kid is more ready for something than the parent. Right. And then what would happen in a case where the kid really doesn't want to do something, doesn't want to learn to drive? I'm afraid I don't want to do it. And you want the kid to be able to learn to drive so he can take himself to lacrosse practice. Right. What if the situation is reversed and you're more ready for the kid than the kid is to do something new? I think it is very helpful to sort of meet a kid where they are. I think that a lot of times we almost like prioritize in some way convincing our kids rather than connecting with our kids. Like the idea of being anxious about doing something new or being in charge of heavy machinery when you have like I have a terrible sense of direction and I grew up in the suburbs and I was terrified of driving and didn't get my license until an embarrassingly late age. So I think that there's, which might be why I live in a city now, I'm not sure, but I do 
drive quite well, I think. But anyway, the point is that, and I don't mean for this whole podcast to be about subways. <laughs> Transportation choices with Dr. Dana Dorfman. This, this is your next book, How to Ride the Subway. I mean, I'd like, it's so ironic. So even understanding, though, like what the anxieties are about and kind of and instilling in your kids some of confidence in their abilities to do it, like working through some of those barriers, because that is also such a useful exercise. So much of the time, we are fearful of things. We're fearful of feeling something incompetent, inadequate, lost, and then kind of beginning to problem solve about how to manage those feelings can sort of help you work through with your teen these kinds of tasks. And again, I think it's the interaction with the teen that is what this book is sort of about, right? Sort of separating out your anxiety from their anxiety when it helps and when it's too much. Okay, we're talking to Dr. Dana Dorfman. When we come back, we're going to pivot towards solutions. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different and fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E, lumen.me, and use the code FRESH at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky, wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it. We're back. We're talking to Dr. Dana Dorfman. Her new book is When Worry Works, How to Harness Your Parenting Stress and Guide Your Teen to Success. I was just smiling. I'm like, we always got to find those solutions. We're ready. Right. You talk, Dr. Dana, a lot in the book about a key to solving kind of specific dilemmas around anxiety by knowing your values. So can you talk about that and why that's such an important key to balancing anxiety? I feel like the more that I talk about this and the more that I read and write about it, the more that I feel like that's the key to so much of (laughs) everything 
is that it sounds very easy or it sounds even cheesy maybe to say like, oh, what are your values and living with uh, in accordance to your values. So in the book, I offer a list of values and there are many, many in there. And I think that it is very helpful to identify like three or four that are so fundamental and important to you, sort of how it is that you want to live your life, not how you think you should live your life or what the right way to do it is, but really, really in the depths of your soul, or as my grandmother would say, my kishkas, like, <laughs> like, what is it that like you really, really believe in? And what is it that is most important to you to guide you and to you as a person and to you in the way that you behave? And if you are able to do that, that can be, and if you do it in a time that is not charged and is not full of angst, then in those moments when you're making a parenting decision that is highly anxiety producing, which it feels like many parenting decisions are, whether it's like, should I- I'm going to say most. Yes, Yes. thank you. Not even like what college should they go to, but even like, should I let them sleep late this morning or should I wake them up? That you can always use that as the guide because unfortunately, when we are anxious and we're unaware of the anxiety, a lot of times that's what's sitting in the driver's seat. I don't want blah, blah, blah to happen. Therefore, I'm doing blah, blah, blah. That that is, I don't want them to grow up to be a sociopath. So that's why I'm going to really hit home how bad lying is. Or, you know, like that it's, I don't know if that's the best example, but those are fear-based kinds of interventions or behaviors. If you are using your values as sort of the North Star or what is in the driver's seat, that can always be sort of what is informing whatever it is that you're doing. I want to drill down on that a little bit so that, because I think I understand it as a concept and having read the book, what it really looks like. Because what I think you're saying is we come up with a million decisions about like, well, my kid has to go to the best school. And to do that, they've got to go to Mandarin camp this summer and they've got to this and they've got to be getting these kind of grades and we have to stay up late study. And we're kind of chasing a lot of things that maybe we don't know where we're actually heading. We talk a lot on the podcast about the triangle for us. For me, Amy and I have different views on how the triangle should work, but mine is probably the right one. So let's focus on that. I always say the top of the triangle, because to me, there's the less room at the top of the triangle. That's where you have to say, happy children, connected family, successful children to some degree, like whatever successful and think about what that looks like. But that if staying up all night studying so that you can get into the right school doesn't fit with those values, then they're incompatible. Am I defining it in the right way? If I understand what you're saying, yes, I do think that the top of the triangle is happy, fulfilled, satisfied kids. Like, I don't know a parent, anytime I have asked a group of parents or individually sort of what is most important to you as a parent for your kid, every single parent says, something to the effect of, I want them to be happy. I want them to feel good about themselves. I want them to feel fulfilled. Oftentimes it's some version of, I want them to be self-sufficient or something like that. And if that is what is most important, then I think even when we are stressing about what college they're going to get into, I think that it's worth our even taking a step back to even say like, so if they go to 
I'm going to use two school, Emory versus Harvard, will one of them make them ultimately more happy or where would they be most happy or what makes, and that doesn't mean in every moment your kid has to feel happy, but it does mean tuning into who your kid is, what your kid needs from you, like sort of staying where they are and staying connected to them, as opposed to future tripping and trying to coerce them into something because you have some sort of idea. And I feel very soapboxy because this is always what like gets me and I think was certainly the informant of my book and my own experience and my experience with other parents. Once you become so future trippy, you really do miss who you have right in front of you. And you're really much more reactive to your anxiety than you are responsive to the kid who is standing right before you. So thinking about things about when you can remind yourself, like, I want them ultimately to feel fulfilled and satisfied and good about themselves. And what can I do right in this moment that will engender that feeling or convey that to them, then that would be most beneficial. I could actually give you an example. But is that a value? Like, it seems to me like I want my kids to be happy that that's where you're getting again into problematic thinking. That's not really a value, right? A value is acceptance. <laughs> a value is connection. I mean, I'm not sure. Like, I want them to have something that I can't ensure the outcome of. That's how you get back into anxiety driven parenting. I agree. So, like, here's an example, and I probably should refine what the value is. But I do think that there are many values that contribute to this top of the triangle this happy, fulfilled, satisfied, self sufficient efficient, things like that. So I agree that being happy is not a value. I do think that if you drill down into what it is that you think leads to a meaningful life and what values contribute to a meaningful life, that that will help you be able to make those decisions. I keep making the triangle with my fingers in those moments. For example, here's one, and I need to refine, it is very important to me that my kids are self-aware. Like that's something. And so like knowing themselves, self-awareness, whatever you want to call it, clearly I value awareness. That's what the whole book is about too. And so my son was making the decision whether or not to take the standardized test to get into college because, you know, a lot of schools are test optional and we were trying to make that decision. And many Parents were, there were all different sort of permutations of how people are making those decisions. And in actuality, for him, and given what is most important to him in like on a daily basis, getting through junior year of high school, he has a lot of extracurricular activities. He's a very busy schedule. He also needs a lot of rest. He is very devoted to his classes. He's not somebody who enjoys standardized <laughs> who does? test taking. Really? That many people who are. <laughs> and it would require so much extra sort of preparation and things like that. His schedule is already extremely full. Like, what message are we saying? Like, so let's encourage you to spend an extra five to six hours or more a week and all of the stress that accompanies that to possibly get a score that would then be, you know, that you will possibly include in that would make some kind of a difference. What's most important, he knows himself well, he knows sort of. And so rather than deciding like, oh, he's taking the easy way out, which is not how we interpreted it, though I trust that many people will hear this and think, 
that she let him off the hook or whatever. But we were very clear with him. What's most important to us is that you feel like, you know, that you are, that you know yourself, that you know sort of what feels right to you. This is the way that you're weighing that decision. And so that's like, okay with us. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. They let the kids value is self-awareness. And so then when they're like, I and all this self-awareness that you have taught me to prioritize, know myself, I'm choosing this, and then you have to be okay with that. And the uncertainty that that brings, is that the perfect decision? I mean, the, the standardized test is the perfect example. There is no right answer right now. Everybody has to figure it out for themselves. And it's very stressful. But when you are serving the value, then you can you know, sleep tonight knowing you're serving the value. And that's the best outcome. We've been talking to Dr. Dana Dorfman. Her new book is When Worry Works, How to Harness Your Parenting Stress and Guide Your Teen to Success. Dr. Dana, tell us where your audience can find your book and your work and everything that you do. So my website is drdanadorfman.com. There's a lot of information and resources on there. I'm on Instagram and Facebook and all of the other social media platforms or many of them. And also I encourage people, there's actually a quiz. We didn't get to talk about sort of the different ways that achievement anxiety can manifest itself, but there are eight different archetypes that I had created. And so you can also go on my website and take the quiz, which is actually kind of fun, and then be able to see if there are ways that you can harness your anxiety and use it to your advantage or sort of recognize the ways that it may be getting in your way. I took the quiz. I'm the clairvoyant. So (laughs) Ah. definitely clairvoyant. Yes. And does that like match? Does that track for you? As the kids say, (laughs) that tracks. Tracks, right. So you could go on and take the quiz and we will link to that site and you can find all of Dr. Dana's work. And thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you so much. I value your work. So thank you. Thanks, Dr. Dana. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. 
It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.